This is a Federal News Network podcast. You've heard of the labor shortages facing many sectors of the economy. One path to bring in more nurses, technicians, or mechanics might be to reinvigorate apprenticeship programs. Now the Labor Department has appointed 29 members to its Advisory Committee on Apprenticeships, a move officials hope will guide them towards improving that whole situation. For more on the administration's plans, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with Labor Secretary Marty Walsh. Really what the apprenticeship programs are is about creating a pathway for people into good careers and good jobs in our country. You know, they've been here at the Department of Labor for quite some time now. What we did was we kind of relaunched the advisory committee to really make sure that as we make these investments, that they're really targeted investments in in getting people trained into new jobs. And is that the main mission of the advisory committee or does it have other objectives? Oh, they're going to have other objectives. They're going to focus around really critical issues around the national apprenticeship system. You know, they're going to be looking at expansion and modernization Obviously, diversification, you know, President Biden's equity plan is all throughout government. So looking at diversification of the national apprenticeship model to make sure that we're creating pathways for African-American, Latino, people of color, just making sure that's there. Also, we're going to be looking at expansion of apprenticeships into new industry. Probably this is the biggest thing uh, into new industry sectors, uh, you know, cybersecurity, looking at that clean energy, obviously, with the investments in clean energy and the carbon goals that the president has laid out advanced manufacturing. We hear a lot about modernization of manufacturing and kind of losing the actual people working in those and and really teaching, helping about advanced manufacturing. IT is another big area. Information technology is something that there's a real big opportunity there. And healthcare. Um, I've gone around the country and we we all know that there's, you know, a nursing shortage in this country today. And in the next 10 years, it's potentially going to be a crisis if we don't do something about it. So we have an opportunity with healthcare, and I also think mental health services. We, will, you know, there's an increase in need for mental health counselors and services, and a diversified pool of people. You know, we need to make sure that we have people of color doing. I saw it in Boston when I was the mayor, when we brought on more counselors into our schools. It was far more impactful when we had Latino and African American and, and, and counselors of color working with young people of color. The district was majority kids of color. We're also looking at making sure there's equitable access for all workers to participate and succeed in the national program. So I'm excited about the advisory committee. Uh, It's a 29-member committee. There's a two-year appointment on it. It's a really diversified group from different sectors and different industries. And, you know, it's not all slanted one way or the other. We're very intentional about making sure that we have nonprofits represented on their businesses represented, labor's represented, organizations. So it's really potentially a great opportunity and a great group. Community colleges represent on there. So I think it's a good group of folks that will, can do some great work. Other than going into newer arenas, into new industries and so forth, are there other ways that the national apprenticeship model has been modernized by you all, maybe even from a programmatic side or a grant-making side? Well, I've only been here for six months. So I know that our team has been working on it for quite some time. And we're in the conversation right now about grant-making. And modernizing is probably the perfect word to use. Modernizing is, is, is exactly what we need to do in this system. When I say modernizing, when you say modernizing, I don't think we necessarily mean technology. I think we mean reaching out, getting a bigger applicant pool, and then modernizing how we do our business. And how does the department kind of take note of what sectors of the economy could be good for apprenticeships? I know that you mentioned the nursing shortages. Is it just of, hey, we need workers here, let's start an apprenticeship program, or do other factors come into play? No, it's factors. We look at data. We talk to commerce, talk to um, education, the secretaries, but also the teams over there. What are they hearing from the industries? Some of it's my own expertise. You know, Secretary Armando 
uh, Secretary of Commerce, expertise as a governor. So it's a little bit of everything. I mean, it's not really that hard to understand when we're looking at industry in America and what's emerging in what areas we need to have better training and better apprenticeships in. I think that, you know, historically, we've always thought of apprenticeships as maybe construction or, or manufacturing, things like that, which it is. But we have an opportunity at this moment in time to, in the 21st century to really think about how do we enhance that and create more opportunity and more buzz in these different areas. Yeah, speaking from a younger generation, there is sort of a desire to go back to apprenticeship programs when, you know, the the college route is getting kind of saturated by things. Is there an effort by the department to promote to the newer generations for the idea of going into an apprenticeship program? Yeah, there is. We've spent a lot of time here in talking in the last couple of months about, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do this, the big push for college. With the last 20, 25 years in this country, we were so focused on getting young people into college that quite honestly, in some areas we took our eye off the ball a bit. And now we're seeing potential shortages in construction, shortages in manufacturing. And then these new emerging industries, you know, the tech industry, oftentimes you don't need to have a master's degree to work in those areas. So we have opportunities. So I think by creating these pathways, and that's why I think this younger generation, we need to get this right. This younger generation is going to see if these programs aren't good. They're going to feel it. And I think that we don't want to miss that opportunity. I wanted to go back real quick on the selection of the members of the advisory committee. Can you just tell me a little bit about what went into that selection process? We posted it. A lot of people applied. And I think there was an application process. It was a selection committee. Pretty much as far as my involvement in it, I was presented with a list of a slate that was recommended. Anything else that we haven't touched on that you want to make sure is out there? You know, I'll just end with this. You know, apprenticeships are certainly, as we talked about, can be found in all different industries. But I think it's really important that the Department of Labor and the team here, we're looking to make sure we continue the expansion. So not only are we building on the current programs, and, and there is a need for building trades, and there is a need for construction, there's a need for plumbers, there's a need for laborers, there's a need for electricians. But it's also important for us to, to acknowledge and recognize the emerging industries. Use nursing as an example. We know there's a shortage in America today, but the shortage is not as drastic as it will be in 10 years if we don't take action. So I think that, you know, we can use apprenticeships to think about what are the jobs of the next decade? What are going to be needed? Where are the shortfalls going to be? And I think that, you know, to keep our economy moving forward and to keep our country leading in the world, we're going to have to identify those areas and make investments in those areas. Marty Walsh is Secretary of Labor, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. Find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive and hear the Federal Drive on demand by subscribing at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy. Um, 
with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on, and you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about but that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to, to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. 
I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot, both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I would like to add one thing, if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, w- WAPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.